Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Good morning. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Good morning. I hope you guys are doing amazing. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, uh, my name is Jeff Banks. I have the honor of working with our students here at the Wilmington campus. Um, and whether you're in the room or you're watching online or from one of our campuses in Leland or New Bern, we are super grateful to be together this morning as we continue our series on the life and legacy of Daniel called Gracious Resistance. And I hope you guys don't mind. We're going to jump right in. I'm going to give you a recap of kind of what's been going on in Daniel, right? This is like when you've been watch Netflix and it's like last week on Gracious Resistance. That's what I'm about to give you. And I know we always skip that because we just watched 20 episodes in a row, but you can't skip this part. Um, So uh, Daniel... Um, serves. It's kind of like a highlight reel of Daniel's life. It talks about all the craziest stuff that happened to Daniel while he was uh, exiled in uh, Babylon. And it really is such a dense, beautiful book with so much to learn that like we could never cover it all in four weeks. So if you haven't yet, I would encourage you uh, to read it during the week, read it in your own time, because uh, I think there is so much to learn there. And the first half of Daniel is pretty straightforward. Um, it's kind of just his story. It's easy to read. It's easy to understand. There's lots to learn there. The second half is more like an episode of Lost. You have no idea what's going on. It's very confusing, but you know that it's good. Um, so I would encourage you, if you haven't yet, to go uh, read Daniel. And Daniel uh, begins with uh, Daniel and three of his friends being whisked away to Babylon from Jerusalem um, as young men. They were probably like 16, 17 years old, and they'd grown up up in Jerusalem and Babylon came and kind of sacked Jerusalem and took uh, treasures from the temple and took these young men with the hopes of making them become Babylonian. And I think it's important to note that Daniel was pretty old. He'd grown up in Jerusalem. He knew a way of life in Jerusalem before he became an exile. And once they get there, Daniel, along with his friends, they kind of resist being converted. They kind of resist uh, being assimilated to no end but they do change their way of life. Because anytime you're, you're surrounded by a culture that is so different than your own, it, it changes you, right? It shapes you, it forms you. And while they resist that to no end, there are things that are different for them. Like for example, we see Daniel and his friends, they take on Babylonian names. They take on Babylonian names, which seems like, oh, no big deal. But for them, this would have been a big deal. Names were incredibly important uh, in their culture. Not only that, but they become wise men in the court. They essentially take like government uh, jobs in Babylon. They help Babylon where they can. That would have been a big deal as well. But there is a space where they kind of hold out. There is a space where they kind of hold out. And we've been talking about this the the past couple weeks, but they hold out whenever it comes to the diet that they're going to eat. One of the ways that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, wanted to convert them was by getting them to eat a Babylonian diet. So it says they were afforded some of the royal rations, right? This was the meat and wine that the royal people would have eaten. This was good food to have. But Daniel and his friends, they decide, no, that'll, that'll defile us. That'll defile us, so we're not going to eat the food of Babylon. 
And they kind of resist. That's, that's the hill that they decide to die on, what they take into their bodies. And I, I love this book because Mike said it reads like a political thriller. I think it reads like a punk rock manifesto. It's like you've got these teenagers who aren't understood by the world around them, who are taken away to this different culture, who, 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 who are trying to live in a different way um, and kind of fighting against the status quo. If you're a teenager who feels misunderstood by the world, this should be your favorite book of the Bible. Um, but the way that they resist, the way that they fight uh, the culture of Babylon isn't like what we might expect. They don't, you know, stomp their feet or throw up their fists or do anything crazy like that. Instead, they're incredibly gracious. They're gracious in the way that they resist Babylon. So they're, for, they're exiles in a foreign world living different. And the question that we've been kind of hinting at and pondering is that if it's true that you and I are also exiles in a foreign world, if, we, if, if you and I as followers of Jesus are all also exiles in a world uh, that is not our own, if it is true that America is not God's chosen land as the church has sometimes treated it, uh, how do you and I live as God's chosen people? How do you and I live in exile, live as exiles and honor God and live life with God when so much around us pushes us in a different direction? And that's kind of what we've been talking about this series. And when Daniel resists the, the diet of Babylon, something happens. He knows that Nebuchadnezzar is a crazy king. Right? Nebuchadnezzar was the type of king that like, if you did something wrong, heads were going to roll. If he woke up grumpy on a Sunday morning, people were going to die. That's who Nebuchadnezzar was. And he knows that, Daniel knows that, he's wild and erratic. And Daniel has this overseer placed over him to, to make sure that he becomes Babylonian. And he knows that if this overseer fails, this overseer is going to die. And Daniel kind of says, hey, I don't want you to die and I also don't want to defile myself. So like, let's work together on this. And, and Daniel resolves like, oh, we will forego the diet of Babylon and we'll just, we'll just eat vegetables and water. We'll just eat vegetables and water and we'll forego the royal rations. And if we start to look bad, we can, we can rediscuss this, but go ahead and test us is what he says. So that's what they do. And um, they begin to live on this diet. And I think it's important to note that Daniel suffered a downgrade in order to honor God in this moment, right? Like he saw the meat and the wine in Babylon and he resolved to eat vegetables and water. I was a vegetarian for a year and it always blew my mind how upset people would get that I didn't eat meat uh, for a little bit. And this is what Daniel is doing, right? For some of us not having a steak is mind blowing. Uh, and here we have Daniel suffering this downgrade, this good rich food in order to honor God. And we saw last week that uh, as Daniel did this, as he lived life with God, as the king got to know him, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar began to like Daniel. He began to kind of lean on Daniel uh, for different things. And he had this dream. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He gets all stressed out and all anxious, says that he doesn't sleep all night. And he wakes up in the morning and he knows that it means something. He's like, I got to know what this dream means. So he turns to all the wise men of Babylon. And he says, hey, tell me, tell me what this dream means. And they aren't able uh, to tell him. They don't, they don't know what it means. They don't even know what the dream is. So Nebuchadnezzar gets angry. And he says, oh, if you can't, you know, if the wise man can't do what I pay him to do, I'm just going to, I'm just going to kill him. So they're lining up the wise men on the chopping block and they realize that Daniel and his friends aren't there. And they say, go get Daniel and his friends. The executioner goes to find Daniel and his buddies. And upon finding them, to make a long story short, Daniel and his buddies are able to save the day, right? They go back, they pray to God and they interpret the dream for, for Nebuchadnezzar, uh, saving the day. 
And the wise men of Babylon had told Nebuchadnezzar, they tell him all the time everything that he wants to hear. Like, oh, you're so smart. You're so wise. Your kingdom's going to last forever. But when they go find Daniel and his friends, they kind of do the opposite. Daniel says, no, 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 your dream. It means that your kingdom is finite. It means that you're not as powerful as you think you are. It means that you're going to die someday and the whole kingdom of gold that you've spent your time building will eventually crumble away. So to fast forward the story a little bit to where we're going to be today, we're gonna be in Daniel 5 and we're jumping over a couple chapters. So just so you know what's happening there, Daniel 3 is a really famous story many of us probably know of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to bow to the golden idol and they're thrown into a furnace and God is in the furnace with them and rescues them uh, from burning. Really famous story, really awesome story with so much to learn, but Daniel's not in that story. And since we're following his life, we're kind of gonna jump over it. And then in Daniel four, we have the fall of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the rise of a new king. We have the end of Nebuchadnezzar's kingship and a new king coming into power who is his grandson, Belshazzar. Great name. And don't confuse Belshazzar with Belshazzar, which is the Babylonian name that Daniel ended up with. So don't mix those two up. Belshazzar is Daniel. Belshazzar is the new king. I don't know why we went naming, with naming kids Daniel instead of Belshazzar, but you know. <laughs> um, but... So this is King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He's now in charge of this whole kingdom. Uh, and as you do, whenever you become a king, uh, you, you throw a party. So that's what, that's what King Belshazzar does. He throws this crazy party. In verse one, it says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So this is like a rager, right? Like he's got a thousand people. Uh, they're all drinking and having a good time. And what happens next is a tale as old as mankind. It's kind of an on-the-nose lesson for us all. They drink too much, and they do something really, really dumb. Under the influence of wine, verse two, Belshazzar commanded that they bring in the vessels of gold and silver that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the vessels of gold that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines uh, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So whenever Nebuchadnezzar looted uh, Jerusalem, not only did he bring Daniel and his friends, but he also brought treasure, right? He brought treasures from the temples. These would have been the holy vessels that were used in the temple while Daniel was growing up. And he gets so drunk that he decides to intentionally insult Daniel, intentionally insult his people. This was an accident. It was not an accident. He knew what he was doing whenever he did this. So he gets them to go get the vessels. And this would have been an absolute slap in the face to Daniel. It would have been an absolute slap in the face to his people. It would have been the most disrespectful thing you can imagine for them to use these holy vessels of God and enjoy the very diet that Daniel had rejected, right? Enjoy the very wine and the very meat that Daniel had said, no, that will, that will defile me. I won't do it. And here they are drinking them out of the holy vessels of God from the temple. They're being used to gorge themselves on the blessings of the world, and it kind of takes these uh, themes that we see throughout the book of Daniel and it kind of puts it on the table, this light versus darkness, holy versus secular, Jerusalem uh, versus Babylon. And it puts it in really clear terms. And what I want to suggest to you today is that this story takes the same struggle that is very familiar to you and I, and it puts it in front of us for examination. That just like Daniel, you and I are exiles, 
We're surrounded by a culture that is not our own. We are surrounded by a way of life that is contrary to the way of Jesus. We're surrounded by a culture that is trying its absolute hardest to conform us trying its absolute hardest to make us rely on the diet of Babylon, if you will. And the truth is that it's done a pretty good job. It's done a pretty good job at converting us and assimilating us and and conforming us. It's done a pretty good job at making us accustomed to the diet of the world. To say it plainly like this, whenever we think about the big C church in America, when we think about people who would call themselves Christians, and I include myself in that, it is easy for us to live much more like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar than it is for us to live like Daniel. It is easier for us to gorge ourselves on the blessings of the world and chase those down than it is for us to resolve not to defile ourselves. And I know that whenever we hear that, I think our knee-jerk reaction is typically to defend ourselves or distance ourselves from that. But I I don't want us to trick ourselves into thinking that we don't do this. My hope is that as a family, as the body of Christ, as a church, that we can spur each other towards something better, something greater, and something more beautiful. If you look at the state of the church in America, it's clear that something is wrong, right? Like every week, there's a new headline of a fallen pastor who has an affair or abuses someone. The next generation is leaving the church in droves. My generation has left the church in droves. It is really, really clear that something is wrong. There seems to be more stories of church hurt and religious trauma than there are stories of love and kindness and service coming out of the church, if we're being honest. And might I suggest that the reason for that is, is that we have become too accustomed to the diet of the world. And it's really, really obvious. Let me explain what I mean. For Belshazzar, his gods are the food and the drink and the wine, the things that make him feel good in the moment. Those are the gods that he's worshiping. For Nebuchadnezzar, it was dreams of his own power, his own kingdom, and how great he was, the power and ability to control people, the political sway, the political influence. Those were the things that Nebuchadnezzar worshiped. These were the diets of Babylon. These were the gods of Babylon, right? We see Belshazzar praising the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, wood and stone. And just chapters before Daniel establishes those things as being representative of the kingdoms of the world. And I don't know what your diet is. I don't know what you have become accustomed to, but I think we all kind of have something. I think we all long for the diet of the world. We all look at the blessings of the world and we long for it, right? And maybe, maybe it's power, maybe it's social status, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's money or sex or relationships. Maybe it's the picture of the ideal family that we've created in our head. Maybe it's the picture of what we think success is that we've created in our heads. We're surrounded by the diet of the world kind of swimming in this water. And most times, I don't even think we realize it. But when we do it probably feels impossible to change. If you think about our values and how we spend our time, I mean, how often do we take the kingdom of God and make it secondary? How often do we take the kingdom of God and say, no, this is for Sunday? How often do we long for the blessings of the world over the blessings of God? How often do we long for material possession and wealth over righteousness? We see Jesus telling the wealthy again and again and again that your money will not fulfill you. Your money won't satisfy you. But still, the picture of success that we feed to the next generation is financial. We see Jesus to challenge those who, we see Jesus challenge us to love those who are not like us, to be with those who don't think like us. But still, we find ourselves pointing political fingers and looking down on those 
who seem to have different perceived morals. We make decisions about our life and where we will go based on what monetary or cultural success it will bring us instead of what will further the kingdom. Although we would probably never say it so plainly, if you look at how we spend our time, if you look at how sometimes we treat others, if you look at the priorities and the things that we have put before God, if you look at the way that we navigate politics, I think that oftentimes the truth becomes kind of clear. And please know that I, I, I'm, I'm, not pre, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to you. I'm not looking down from some pulpit going, you guys need to get it together. I'm down here with you saying, man, we have to find something greater. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, we tend to think that if we can pass the right law, vote for the right person, have the right belief system, gather enough resources that somehow, some way, we'll be able to honor God through the system of Babylon. But what if there is a better way? What if we are called to something higher? That is my hope that we can learn that from the book of Daniel. So let's keep reading and see what happens next. They're having this party. They're drinking out of the holy vessels. And then something crazy happens. A hand appears and begins to write on the wall of the royal palace. Just kind of a floating hand like uh, Adam's family. That's kind of how I think about it. Uh, <laughs> it was thing. Uh, and the king is kind of watching this happen. And of course, as any of us would, he becomes terrified, right? He becomes scared and he, he doesn't understand what's being written on the wall. So he turns to the wisest people of his day. He says, go get the enchanters and the sorcerers and the diviners and all the wisest people in the eyes of Babylon. And I know we hear those words and think it's ridiculous, but this would have been like his presidential cabinet, right? Like, go get my advisors, the wisest people that we know. And then he tells them, verse seven, he says, whoever can read this writing, whoever can read this writing and tell me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck and rank third in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men come filing in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king the interpretation. All the wisdom of the world couldn't discern what's going on here, right? Like the smartest people of Babylon look at the things of God and they're utterly confused. They fail to understand. They fail to discern. Even whenever Belshazzar said, I'll give you all the riches and all the gold and all the power in the world, if you can figure this out, it, it, it didn't matter. They kind of turned to the conventional wisdom of their day and it fell short. And we see this pattern again and again and again in Daniel. Something happens. They turn to the wisdom of the world to try to help and it always falls short. The wisdom of the world always falls short. But luckily, the queen remembers Daniel. Belshazzar's wife remembers Daniel in the moment. She goes up. She says this in verse 11. She says, there's a man in your kingdom who's endowed with a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, who was found to have enlightenment, understanding, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and diviners because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will reveal the interpretation. His wife remembered, the queen remembered that Daniel had a wisdom about him. Daniel had perspective that was different than the world. They knew that Daniel had found a way of life that was better than their own. They remembered that Daniel could help when everything went wrong. And I think that there is something so beautiful about this. That Daniel had, had so positioned himself, he had so faithfully lived his life with God, that even those who didn't believe in his God, even those who had just spit in the face of his God, knew that Daniel could help. 
They remembered him as someone who could help and someone that could tell them what was going on. To use the language that we use here at Port City, maybe uh, you could say it like this, that because Daniel did life with God, he was positioned to be for the world. He's positioned to care for the world, to love the people in the world, no matter what, to help the people in the world whenever they needed it. And we have to remember that whenever Daniel would have walked in this room to see the writing on the wall, he would have seen the holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem that he grew up going to, strewn about the place, filled with wine and meat, the same diet that he rejected. This would have been a huge slap in the face to Daniel, and he would have known it when he walked in the door. When he's coming to help these people, he would have seen it. They just sacked his town, murdered his people, burned his temple. And now they just sit there and they drink out of the vessels of God that they took. And Daniel knows that. He sees it. But what does Daniel do? He has every reason to say, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to tell you what that means. Look at what you just did to me. Look at what you did to my people. But instead, Daniel is gracious. Daniel is loving. Daniel is understanding. I mean, if there's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament, here it is, right? This is it. The king tells Daniel, he says, I know you're wise. I know you can help. I know you can solve problems. And then verse 16, he tells Daniel the same thing that he told his wise men. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple And have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest in the kingdom. If you give me the wisdom of God, if you help me understand this thing of God, then I will give you all the blessings of the world. I'll give you all the power you could ever want, all the money, all the wealth, all the power. You won't have to want for anything ever again. And I think many times this is kind of what we hope will happen for us. That if we just trust God enough, if we just follow God enough, then we'll get all the blessings of the world. But we have to look at what Daniel says next. Verse 17, Daniel answers the king. You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. I don't want your money. I don't want your power. I don't want all the blessings of the world. That's not what I need, right? He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about station. He doesn't care about anything that Babylon has to offer him. He says, you can keep them, but I will still help. And if you're anything like me, you look at this and you're like, how is that possible? How is it possible for Daniel to look at this diet of Babylon, all the blessings in the world that are so enticing and so desirable for all of us and say, hey, I don't need that. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. You can give it to someone else. And I think the beautiful thing we can learn from Daniel is that he had tasted and seen what God was like. He knew that there was nothing more pleasing nothing more enticing, nothing more fulfilling than what God had to offer. He had taken the things of Babylon, the blessings of Babylon, and he had put them in their proper place. He knew they were temporary. He knew that they would fall short. He knew that there was something greater, that they wouldn't fulfill him. And it was in living his life with God that Daniel was able to resist defilement, resist the diet of Babylon. But nevertheless, he still helps, right? And what he does is he recounts the story of Belshazzar's grandfather as uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And he kind of recounts the story. He says, hey, your, your grandfather had all the, all the money and all the power in the world. He could have done anything that he wanted. And he became so exalted by the world that he became arrogant. And it wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar lost everything that he was able to see God for who he really was. In fact, a few times throughout the early, earlier chapters of Daniel, we see Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge God. 
He does it like three or four times. He says, oh, the God of Daniel is the real God. He even passes laws to make everyone worship the God of Daniel. But it isn't until the fall of his kingdom. It's not until Nebuchadnezzar loses everything that he sees God for who he really was. And after recounting the story of his grandfather, Daniel says this to Belshazzar. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. He says, dude, you knew this. Like you saw your grandfather, you saw his downfall. You saw him fill himself up on the power and the blessings of the world. And you knew it tore him apart, but still you find yourself here at the altar of the world again and again and again, worshiping these gods again and again, gorging yourself on whatever it has to offer. And I hate to say it like this. Sometimes I don't like being so direct, but uh, sometimes this is us. Sometimes this is up, we can, we can look around the world and see the end result of culture run wild. We can look around the world and see where gorging yourselves on the blessings of the world gets people. Like it's not hard to see. We can see the selfishness. We can see the poverty. We can see the disregard for human life. We can see the division from politics. We can see the hunger and thirst for authority and power. We can see the war and the violence and the brutality. It's all around us, right? It's not hard to see. Yet we still pursue the same things again and again and again, hoping that somehow it'll be different for us. Somehow if we can get enough of it, it will fix things. Oftentimes, just like Belshazzar, we use the vessels of God to enjoy the blessings of the world. We take the gifts that he gives us, the wisdom that he endows us with, and we just chase after the world trying to attain all the resources through his ways. We think that if we follow God close enough, if we can cram Jesus into our business model, if we can donate enough of what we have, then everything will work out and we'll be okay from a worldly aspect. We won't see pain. We won't see hardship. We won't see suffering if we really follow God. And whenever we inevitably see pain and hardship and suffering, we wonder why God's not at work. We wonder why God's not answering our prayers. But the truth is that lack of suffering, ease of life, an abundance of money or material possessions, political power, those are the things of the world. Those are the blessings of Babylon, and we were never promised them. Instead, Jesus promises us that whenever we really follow him, we will suffer that we have to take up our cross and follow him, Matthew 16, 24, that, that living life with God as an exile is gut-wrenchingly difficult. Living life with God as an ex- exile is incredibly difficult here on this earth. And if we don't feel that tension every day, if, if walking with Jesus isn't gut-wrenchingly difficult, if we're not having to give things up that we never wanted to give up, then maybe we've become too accustomed to the diet of this world. We will experience hardship. We will experience pain. We won't have all the material possessions in the world, but it is through that suffering that we bring heaven to earth. It is through that sacrifice that we are conformed to his image. The call of Jesus is far from the blessings of Babylon. They are not the same thing. And I think that if we can learn to live like Daniel, 
If we can learn to live life with God, then we can put the things of Babylon in their proper place. We can stop striving after money and power and social status, thinking they'll somehow fulfill us. We can stop expecting culture to make it easier for us to follow Jesus because it is never going to happen. We are exiles and we are living in Babylon and any attempt to attain the blessings of the world through the things of God only ends in defilement. And when we put the things of Babylon in its proper place, whenever we recognize them for what they are, just like Daniel, they will not entice us. They will not entice us. They won't, we won't be seduced by the thought of money or power or social status. We will know that the things of God are the only things that will fulfill us. Because like Daniel, we can taste and we can see that the Lord is good. And as we do that, as we taste and see the way of life that God offers us, we will begin to long for the kingdom more than we long for Babylon. When we accept this idea that we're exiles in a foreign world, we can live as Simon Peter writes in 1 Peter 2. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visit us, visits us. Is this not exactly how Daniel lived? Right, that Babylon accused Daniel of doing wrong again and again and again, but they saw his good deeds. They saw his wisdom. They saw his love, right? And those are the lives that we are called to live as exiles, as beneficial exiles to the world around us. And whenever we do this, whenever we accept this idea, the point is not to be victims of culture. It's not to go, oh, culture is so hard. It makes us so hard to be Christian. Oh, the world is against us. No, the point isn't to complain and, and make a bunch of noise and act like victims. Daniel never once did that. He never once complained. He never made a bunch of noise or flipped out. He saw Nebuchadnezzar put his three friends in the furnace and he didn't complain. He had such compassion such understanding for the people around them that he, he worked to understand where they were coming from. He, he cared for the people of Babylon again and again and again. He resisted their way of life so graciously that every opportunity Daniel had to help, he helped. He helped save his overseer to make sure that his change of diet wouldn't get him killed. He helped interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams so that he could have understanding. Whenever they decided that they were going to kill all the wise men of Babylon, if they couldn't interpret the dream, Daniel not only interpreted the dream and rescued himself and his friends, but he also said, no, you must spare the lives of all the wise men of Babylon as well. He saved them too. Daniel lived life with God. And because he did it so faithfully, he was positioned to be for the world. He was positioned to love the world. And to end the story in, in Daniel 5, here's what happens. Daniel comes in, he reads the writing on the wall. He says, there's three words. Mean, Tekel, and Perez. And mean means that God has numbered the days of the kingdom of Babylon and is now at an end. This kingdom is finite and it won't last. Tekel means that you've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your way of life doesn't measure up. It's not sufficient to bear the weight of the world. And Perez means that your kingdom has now been divided. This is the message that Daniel gives Belshazzar. And because he gave them, him the truth... Instead of just what he wanted to hear, Daniel is clothed in purple. He is given a gold chain. He is given power and all of those things. And that very night, the king is killed and the kingdom is divided. We cannot put our hopes in the kingdom of this world because they will always fall short and they will always be found deficient. 
And as we continue to read, as we wrap up our series next week, we will see that through the chaos, through the change of kingdoms, through the new kings, Daniel is always remembered and always present as a beneficial exile who is ready to help. And that's the type of exile that we are called to be. That when the kingdoms of the world are shaken, and they will be, when they eventually crumble, and they will, we have something greater that is our foundation. With the Holy Spirit, we have a power and a wisdom that the world does not have. And to use the language that Daniel used, we have an excellent spirit and a better way of life. We can use that spirit to love the world and love the people in it around us in such a way that it transforms them, not controls them, not gives us political power or things of that nature, but instead transforms them. God has given us all gifts and talents and abilities to use. And so often we use them to pursue the things of this world with the vessels of God. But what if instead we decided to further the kingdom of heaven? I think we've kind of shortchanged the gospel. We shortchanged the kingdom. The beautiful, we, we kind of make the gospel something that happens on Sunday, right? We, we, we make the kingdom somewhere that we go whenever we die. But I think the beautiful thing that is happening in our church that I see all the time is that we're, we're learning that being a church, being the people of God is not something that just happens on Sunday. That the kingdom isn't just somewhere that we go whenever we die, but instead Jesus calls us to live in the kingdom now and to bring it here. He calls us to extend church into the week. And it is through that, through our way of life, through our love and our wisdom, through the Holy Spirit, that Babylon will be invaded by heaven. It is through that way of life that our workplaces, our schools, our businesses, our neighborhoods, our friend groups will be invaded by heaven. It's so easy to adopt a theology that says God's gonna do all the work, that you kind of just live here and you suffer here and eventually God will show up and wrap things up and you'll be fine. But that's not the story of Jesus. Instead, God's plan for the redemption of the world is to use us, to use his people, that through our love and through our sacrifice, just like Daniel, we will be known as people who can help. But that doesn't happen until we put the things of Babylon in their proper place, until we pursue the kingdom of heaven above all else, until we don't sell our souls for money and power and social status. That's the call. It's not a call to do anything crazy. It's not a call to quit your job tomorrow. Instead, this is a call to extend the work of the kingdom outside of Sunday. To let this building, our buildings in, in Leland and New Bern, to be a place where we come to celebrate the work of the kingdom that we've done all week. Doing life with God every day of the week allows us to put the blessings of Babylon in their proper place allows us to not be enticed by the things of this world. And that's what this is a call to do. It's a call to be generous to the point that it hurts. It's a call to, to have some personal devotion in your life with God so that when the blessings of Babylon come along, you can put them in their proper place. It's a call to recognize that we have a king who endows us with a power that is not of this world, that this place on Sunday is again a place to come gather and celebrate the work of the kingdom that we've already done, right? This is why our personal devotion with God matters. So church, as we close today, I wanna invite us, we're gonna sing a song together. I want to invite us to sing it as a prayer to sing it with some energy and resolve to, to leave today knowing that there is more. There is more than just Sunday. 
There is more than the blessings of the world and the wisdom of the world that God offers us something greater and something more beautiful and something that transforms the world. And the way that we find that is not by shaking our fist or stomping our feet or trying to get power for ourselves, but instead through gracious resistance. Let's pray together. God, thank you for being a God that not only has power, but has endowed his people with power that carves a way for us to, to love self-sacrificially, that, that, makes, that shows us what it looks like uh, to live as you live, God, that you uh, enable us to live as exiles, God, but not exiles who are, who are just apart from everyone else, but instead exiles that are helpful, exiles that love, exiles that change things. And I pray that you'd give us that energy. I pray you'd give us that wisdom, God. I pray that we wouldn't think that your power ends on Sunday, that we wouldn't think that like maybe someday you'll show up and fix things, but instead that we would be a part of doing that with you. So God, I pray for wisdom and energy and love to live as the kingdom now and not wait for it to come later. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.